So um, would you turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 4? We've been in this text. Uh, Francis has been taking us through it wonderfully and talking about unity. And I want to springboard off that and continue on um, this week and next from these same texts. We're going, this is the beauty of the Word of God. It's depth and it's breadth, right? I'm going to be in the same text as Francis has been preaching on, but it, it's not the same sermon. There's different points and different applications. Same meaning but different applications to be drawn out. And so let's read our text together, and then we'll pray and begin. Looking at chapter 4, let's read from verses 4 down to 16. Follow along with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But... To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God, this is your word, profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Uh, We ask that you, Spirit of God, would speak through the word today to convict and challenge and motivate us to continue to live for Christ, for he is our everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, many things are, 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 are done differently now after emerging, you know, from all these restrictions and all these precautions that we've taken over the last couple of years with the COVID outbreak. Surprisingly, one of the things that still persists are long lines of consumers waiting to get their hands on the next greatest iPhone. Um, looking back in the midst of, of all of the COVID stuff, when Apple released the iPhone 13, uh, things were kind of letting up at that time, but they were still present, right? When they, when they released the 13 last year, long lines were still forming outside retailers around the world. And they were, these were the people who just needed to have, had to have that, that first, that latest release of the iPhone. Guess what? Next month, iPhone 13 is coming out. Technology is always moving forward. And people will, once again, they'll get in line, they'll, they'll pay between $800 and $1,200 to get their hands on the latest iPhone. You know, Francis has been preaching from Ephesians 4 over the last two uh, sermons, not two weeks consecutive, but two sermons on unity. 
And I want to take a moment to really just expand here on what Francis has spoken about. And I want to do so, as you've seen here, from the same text. And, and my reason for doing this is strategic. It's a code word for manipulation. No, just kidding. That's, that's not true. That's not true. It's strategic. We have a ministry service fair today, afterwards. In other words, we're asking you to prayerfully consider how you can help serve Christ and our church by helping in the various ministries where there are gaps, where there are needs. And, and what I hope to show you today is that as you do this, as you prayerfully consider where it is that you could be serving Christ and His church, you're doing more than just helping to meet a need. I want you to see that you're helping build Christ's church. And so our text here in Ephesians 4, it tells us that if, that if you are a believer in Christ, that you have been given a gift from Christ. You, you didn't have to wait in line for this gift. He gave it to you when you became a Christian. You didn't have to pay 800 to $1,200 for this gift. See, Christ took care of the payment in full. This gift that Christ has given, it will never be outdated. It will never be obsolete. And in using this gift, you are not participating in something so fleeting as possessing the latest bit of technology. You are participating in the greatest undertaking of all time. The uniting and the building of Christ's church. So the title of the message this morning is How Christ Builds and Unites His Church. How Christ Builds and Unites His Church. And here's what I want you to see this morning. Unity is preserved when you serve with the gift Christ gave to build up the church Christ loves. Oh, man, let's say that again. That sounds so good. Not because I put it together, because it's true. It comes right out of this text. Unity is preserved when you serve with the gift that Christ gave to build up the church Christ loves. Christ loves His church. He wants it to grow and to mature, and you have a part to play in that. I plan to show you four ways that you can respond that will diligently preserve unity and promote growth in Christ's church. First, you can accept your responsibility in the church. Second, you can acknowledge Christ's authority over the church. Third, you can appreciate the diversity of the church. And then fourth, advance God's purpose for the church. Okay, we'll walk through each one of these. This is your application from the sermon this morning. The first response is for you to accept your responsibility in the church. Accept your responsibility in the church. What responsibility must you accept? You must accept that you, along with every other believer in Christ, has, um, that Christ has sovereignly and graciously given you a gift to be used in a particular function in His body, the church. Look at verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, Paul makes a very visible shift here. He's, he's been talking to the whole church in verse 6. He, he now shifts to speaking to every individual within the church. 
And what a picture this presents, right? He's saying there's only one Lord, there's only one faith, there's only one body. But in this one body, there is also diversity. So if the church, let's say, were a choir, we've had a couple times now where we've had a, a choir singing. And one of the things that just zings me when we're listening to God's praises being sung by a choir is the harmony. And that just it's just taken it to the next step. I mean, unity, uni, uh, uh, unison singing of song of the songs is what we tend to do typically congregationally. Right. We're all singing the same notes. But when you have a choir up here and they're working hard on the on the harmonies, how it just expands and it's, it's beautiful. It's you see why God made music and coupled it with praising him because it just exalts the beauty of Christ, even in how it's sung. And so if the church were a choir of God's making, the sound of our singing would not be unison. It would be a beautiful, multi-part harmony. Harmony creates a richer sound. And in the same way, when you serve with, with your Christ-given spiritual gift, it lends towards the overall goal of preparing everyone for full maturity when they meet the Lord. Paul says, he, he says here, grace was given. And he says, to each one of us. And Paul has used the word one to refer to those seven points of unity right there in, in, um, in verses five or four through six. That He's talking about these points of unity. He's used the word one. And now he uses it to refer to each individual who makes up this unity in his one body. So Paul could have made his point by just using the words to one, right? To everyone. But instead, he added the word, he says, for each. He made it more emphatic. To each one, he says. Every single born-again believer is included in this. Not one is overlooked. Not one is passed by. Every single believer is included. And he says, grace has been given. The word there is charis. Some people name their children Karis. Beautiful name. It means unmerited, undeserved favor. And in this context, this undeserved favor, it refers to a particular enablement given to each believer to empower them for ministry. In other passages, when Paul talks about gifts, he, he uses the, the similar word charisma, which is best termed a grace gift. That's what we saw when we looked in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be back in Corinthians in, in, in a little bit. But when we were there in chapter 12, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And so this, this means that a charisma, a grace gift, is a particular manifestation of God's enabling charis, grace. The one who gives this grace is Christ himself. He's the one who's in focus here. And as a result of the resurrection, Christ has been given all authority and all the power in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28 reminds us of this, right? And he demonstrates it here. How? By bestowing these gifts to each believer for ministry. Not only does Christ give each believer a gift, he also determines the amount of that gift. He says in verse 7 that each of us is the recipient of the gracious gift. He says, according, verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's the same idea that Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 
So since Christ is the one who gives both the gift and the amount of the gift, Christ is the one, right? There should be no jealousy amongst the body. Not all gifts are going to be the same, and not everyone is going to be gifted to the same degree. But all gifts are profitable for the church when they are used within the body. And so, as a member of Christ's body, Christ has given to you a distinctive service that he wants you to render for the effective functioning of his church. And so your ability to perform this service, it's not based on who you are in yourself, but who he has made you to be. And your differing or your gifting, it, it may or may not be the, the same as others or to the it will be to differing degrees as others. But rest assured, Christ has given you this gift so that you would serve. And the question for you to consider is, have you accepted this responsibility in the church? And if not, why not? See, God, God knows what is best for you, and He knows what is best for His church. There's no greater work that you can be involved in than the building up of God's kingdom, the preserving of the unity of God's church. And, and let's be completely real about this. M- ministry is work. Ministry is work. Serving God, serving his people, that requires you to sacrifice. It takes your time. It takes your, your effort. It consumes your resources. But it is the work that God has saved you to do. And he is continually equipping you to do this work. And don't forget that he has also given you grace to carry out this work. Understand the uncertainty and the confusion that that may be within you about how you are gifted, right? And we've we've talked about this before. It's easy to you know spot how other people are gifted while you say to yourself, you know, I wish I knew how Christ had gifted me to serve. Well, as I do each time we talk about this topic, I'm going to say the same thing. Here's how I want to encourage you: Don't. Let not knowing your spiritual gift lead to you not serving in the church. Don't let that happen. Not only is that a mistake, but that won't help you. See, according to Paul, more excellent than any gift is love, right? First Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, without love, the most helpful, the most needful gifts, what do they become without love? Useless. And unprofitable. And so when in doubt, serve in love. When in doubt, serve in love. Find a need. And out of love for Christ, for your brothers and sisters, fill that need. You know, out in the lobby here are going to be several of such opportunities for you to take that statement right there. When in doubt, serve in love. I don't know what my gift is. That you can serve in love. And you can apply that by finding a need out there. And as you do that, it's going to become evident to others, right? Because we can always see the giftings in other people more than ourselves. Other people are going to maybe begin to chime in and say, you know, you seem to be very fruitful when you serve in this capacity. And maybe that's how God's going to show you the way that He's gifted you to serve. 
And even if you never know for certain what your spiritual gifting is, if you are serving in love, then you are choosing a more excellent way. And so let me encourage you, let me admonish you, accept your responsibility to serve in the church. So, having established that each believer has been given a gift, Paul now explains why Christ has the right to determine not only your gift and the measure, uh, and the measure of it, but that every other uh, of that and every other believer in the church. Sorry, that was a little jumbled there. Christ has the right to determine your gift and the amount of it, as He does for every person in His church. Right. So the way that He goes about this by showing that this is the authority that Christ has, Paul goes about it by quoting from the Old Testament. And he does this so that you and I will do something very important in connection with our serving. We will acknowledge Christ's authority over the church. We each need to acknowledge Christ's authority over the church. So let me pause here, just make a brief observation. Uh, And to do this, let me just ask kind of a, a fanciful Question. This is all towards making a point. How absurd would it be if you could, let's say, ask a lion why he has the right to be called the king of the jungle? Mr. Lion, why do you have the right to be called the king of the jungle? Now, the lion, I'm guessing, wouldn't really need to offer any sort of an explanation to you. He would just show you why he's the king of the jungle by his roar, showing you his claws, showing you his teeth. That's why I'm king. The lion is the king of the jungle because it has the power to do what it wants, to who it wants, when it wants. And one of the first times I've mentioned this before, this, you know, I only got so many examples to shove into a sermon sometimes to make a point. So forgive me when I repeat it. Just pretend like you've not heard me say this before. I once swam in the ocean for the first time. I was a lake boy growing up in Idaho, came down to California, did my first swim in the ocean at Stinson Beach. And I got tossed around like a rag doll. And when after what seemed like an eternity, and I came up for air from that first time I was tossed all over the place, how ridiculous would it have been for me to turn around to the next wave that was about to bear down on me and demand it explain to me why it has the right to throw me around like that. How dare you? See, the ocean has the right to do what it does because it is limitless, liquefied power. And as Spider-Man's dad told him, great power comes with great authority, right? When something has great power, it can do what it wants because nobody can stop it. And if I'm going to stop the lion from attacking, well, I have to have something more powerful, like a gun. If I'm going to be safe from the waves, well, I better be on a rock that's solid enough to break that wave. Now, follow me with this. The lion and the ocean, each was given its respective power. The same one who gave them their power also made the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. He's the one who is able to do whatever he pleases. And nothing, absolutely nothing 
is too difficult for him. In fact, you can't even begin to comprehend, comprehend what he is capable of doing. There is no power greater than him. No one can stop him or thwart him or question him. I'm astounded at, at what this one with ultimate authority is about to do here in our text. He's going to explain himself. That floors me. It, it, it floors me that the God who does whatever he pleases explains himself to us so that we can respond. So many in this world, they refuse to acknowledge his right to rule. They foolishly think that they can do as they please. And for a time, it, it appears to be true. But there's a day coming when every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess what? Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. See, aren't you grateful that He's opened your eyes to see this glory of His, this majesty, power, dominion, authority. And He's opened your eyes so that you can not only acknowledge it, but you can willingly submit to Him today. And not at some future point before it's too late. When you're on your knees begging that He not do what He has the authority to do. The Lord wants everyone here this morning to know that now is the day of salvation. And if you, if you turn away from your sin, the right to do what you want, and if you will humble yourself before this one with all authority and power and dominion, and you receive Him to yourself, He will receive you. And I, I urge you, do not delay any longer. He is a wonderful King to serve. Amen? A wonderful King. Okay, now let's turn our attention back to the text. What explanation does Paul give of Christ's authority? Look at verse 8. He says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. <clears throat> now, if, if your text is the New American Standard, it's in all caps, which is the visual signal that he's quoting from the Old Testament here. He's most likely not quoting directly. Well, he's not quoting directly. He's most likely referencing a lot of what Psalm 68 says, and in particular, verse 18. And this is what his point is in referring to the message of Psalm 68. God has already explained in the Old Testament why Christ is able to give gifts to, to each believer. That's what he's pointing out here. God's already explained why Christ has the authority to give gifts, and he did so in the Old Testament. So Psalm 68, it, it lists out many gifts that God gives to his people. And it appears that, that he's taking, Paul here is taking the prevailing theme of this psalm of God giving gifts to his people. And now he's applying it to the church. All, of course, directed by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is behind what Paul is saying here. And so in the present context of, of his letter to the Ephesians, the gifts that God has given are are spiritual in nature, and God has given them, he says, to every believer. We've covered that. So, he gives these gifts because he has the authority to give these gifts. And here's how we are to acknowledge that authority. Two ways that we're to acknowledge this authority. Those who acknowledge Christ's authority, they will first, they will revel in his victory over all his enemies. 
We should revel in his victory over all his enemies. And of course, we revel in, like we're doing in, Saul, in 1 Corinthians 15 over his victory over death and over the grave. Like that's one of the ways we're reveling in his authority and in, in, in his victory. In Psalm 68's case, it's speaking of God who is, who is present with Israel in Sinai and, and he's now coming um, to reside, he says, in Zion. And in order for him to, he says here, ascend on high, as the psalm says, he first had to defeat the enemies, which were the Canaanites. And this resulted in the taking of many captives, uh, which is what Paul refers to in verse 8. He says he led captive a host of captives. And so Paul's main point here is that God has had victory over his enemies. Now, the second part of Paul's referencing here to Psalm 68, it conveys the idea of captive the captives bringing the spoils of victory as gifts now to the victor or of kings who bring tribute, offering um, gifts in homage to this king who's over them now because he conquered them. So Paul is, is he's more summarizing the psalm really than he is quoting from it. And he takes the idea of captives bringing gifts to God and he, then he turns it around saying here that Christ gives gifts to those who are with him on the side of victory. Now, this may seem like kind of the opposite of what the psalm is getting at, but it's, it's not incompatible. If God receives the spoils of his victory over his enemies, which is kind of how Psalm 68 goes, it's not too difficult to understand that he would give gifts to those who are on his side as a provision from him. Right? The gifts, the spoils that he receives, he's giving to those who are with him. So Paul is showing that God, by virtue of his victory over his enemies, he's the one who gives gifts to his children. Who then, you know, well, who's the captives then? Who's in view here if, if he talks about he's led ha- captive a host of captives? Well, from Psalm 68, it's clear who the, that he's speaking there about the enemies of Israel who were defeated when Jerusalem was captured. But what about that? What about in the case of Ephesians? What enemies of God's people has Christ defeated? And you're like, I know. That's almost a Sunday school question. Right? Christ has defeated our greatest of enemies. Satan. Sin. Death. Where did he win this victory? On the cross. That's where he did this. And as a result of this victory, then, he gives gifts of the Spirit who are identified to those who are identified with him. So here's what I think Paul's point is. Let's bring all this together. Christ has had victory over all his enemies. This is the victory that you are to revel in, Christian. And as the victor, Christ chooses to give gifts. Now, if let's just say, let's say Christ had been defeated. Well, he would still be in the grave, right? Spiritual gifts would be useless to us because we would still be dead in our sins. There's no point in saying that, that, that Satan, sin, and death gave gifts to Christ because he conquered them. There's no point in that. Nothing they could give would be of any benefit to Christ or his people. But to you, right, you who are once in bondage to these enemies, well, Christ has set you free. You've received the Spirit's gift from a victorious Lord, your victorious Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's another way that we can, we can revel in this victory. Um, or that's the other, that's, we can acknowledge his authority. We first revel in his victory over all our enemies 
But we can also rejoice in his exaltation over all the universe. That's how we acknowledge his authority. We rejoice together in his exaltation over all the universe. And we see this now in verse 9. So after quoting the psalm, Paul now interprets the psalm for the believers in this age. His interpretation revolves around two words that he uses in the psalm. Ascended and gave. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles that verses 9 and 10 um, are put in parentheses. Now, the parentheses isn't necessarily a part of the original text, but as those who interpreted this are seeing its place within its overall, they're seeing that this is... This is kind of a, a little parenthesis that, that Paul often does in his letters. It means it's, it's not Paul's main point, which is about giving. Uh, but these verses are important in order to establish the fact that, that Christ, after his descent to the earth, he did ascend and thus, as the victor over the enemy, he has the authority to give gifts. That's why he's putting it in here. Verse 9 says, now this expression, he ascended... What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? So Psalm 68 actually says, it says, you have ascended. But, but Paul's again, he's not quoting the psalm directly. He takes the concept here of ascension in order to compare it with the corresponding idea of, of he descended. And Paul is saying that Christ's giving of gifts is explained from Psalm 68 and key to understanding the significant of the significance of Christ's ascension is the fact of what happened prior to his ascension. He first descended. Now, there are some who take this verse to mean that he's referring to Christ descending into hell. But the place of Christ Victory was not hell. That's not where he won the victory. It was on the cross. That's where the work of salvation was finished. That's where the work of victory was, was accomplished. And Jesus told us in John 16, 28, that he would, he would leave the world. He would go to the Father. Right? No, no mention of going to hell or anything like that. So it, it's best to understand Christ's descent, he says, into the lower parts of the earth as simply referring to the grave. To his death. He's talking about his death and his burial here. Um, it was Christ's death that accomplished his victory over evil, over sin. That's where redemption for us was won. And that did not take place in hell. So that's not a reference to that. Verse 10 goes on to say, he says, he who descended, he who came to the earth, died and was buried, is himself he who has ascended now far above all heavens. Hebrews 7.26 says that Jesus was exalted above the heavens. Philippians 2.9 says God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And the reason that he ascended to this highest possible place was, as verse 10 concludes, he says, so that he might fill all things. Uh, the goal of his ascension was to allow Christ to enter into a sovereign relationship with the whole world, because in his position, he has the right to bestow gifts however he chooses. And this totally aligns with what Paul said earlier in the book, kind of the main theme here of what Paul says is going on, this overarching theme in Ephesians 1 verse 9, where he says this, that God is summing up all things in Christ, things in the heavens 
things on the earth. They're all being summed up in Christ. That's, he's just talking about that aspect here in, in connection with the giving of gifts. So because Christ first descended to the grave through his death, through his burial, and then through resurrection, he ascended and he's now been exalted to the highest place. Therefore, Christ is now, he's the head. He's the authority over all the universe. And we rejoice in this because it's from his exalted position over all the universe that he fills us, the church. And what does he fill us with? His fullness. What does that allow us to do? Minister to one another in his name, in his strength, as well as fill this world with the message of his gospel. That's why he has given these gifts to fill us to do this work of service. The gifts that he gives to his people help his church to do this. So now, having explained this word ascended from Psalm 68, as it relates to Christ's ascension, Paul now returns to his main point here. He expounds on the other key points from Psalm 68, the fact that Christ gave gifts, and now he applies it specifically to the church. So in verse 7, Paul said that Christ has given a gift to each believer. But notice now in verse 11, he refers to the giving of a gifted person. So here's how verse 7 and verse 11 flow together. To each one of us was given, that is, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So, I, I hate wrapping gifts. I'll buy the gifts and then when I buy the gifts, I give them to Rosita because she loves to wrap gifts. I don't know why, but I despise wrapping gifts. It's like a gift if I wrap your gift. I mean, it's like a gift with a gift. Because I don't like wrapping gifts. I can't tell you why. I don't like it. And Christ here has wrapped up the gifts that he gives to his church in humanity. He's wrapping up his gifts in people. Christ graciously supplies the church, not with just generic gifts. Here, you know, handing out the gifts generically. No, he wraps them up with people. And he gives some of them as gifts who are, he gives them as gifts to serve the church. And that means that every believer here is intended to be a gift from the Lord to his church. And that gives us our third application. We need to appreciate God's gifts to his church. We need to appreciate God's gifts to the church. How do you show appreciation for a gift? The typical way would be what? Thank you. You say thank you. But isn't it also that you use it for the purpose for which it was given? Like, for example, if someone gives you a shirt as a gift and they never see you wearing it, guess what you are saying? I mean, through your actions. Thank you, but I really don't like that shirt. Right? Thank you, but I, I don't really want to wear that shirt. Now, that's understandable, right? We, we, we do our best to pick something we think they'll like. Sometimes we just re-gift what we have. We won't talk about that. We're allowed preferences, right? And, and, and the shirt just simply may not be to your liking. 
But let's just say the circumstances were this. Let's just say that you only had one shirt to begin with. And it wasn't in very good shape. And if someone gives you a perfectly acceptable brand new shirt and you choose to wear your old shirt, either all or most of the time, see that's kind of saying something different, isn't it? The gift of a new shirt was a gift that you really needed. And for some reason, you just don't see that. In verse 11, Paul is listing four gifts. More precisely, four gifted persons that Christ has given to benefit his church. And in verse 7, the idea is, be the gift. Be the gift. In other words, be the gift that Christ intended you to be to his church. Serve. In verse 11, though, Paul shifts the focus to some specific gifts that he's given. And now he's making the idea Benefit from the gifts that he's given. Benefit from the gifts that Christ gives. So Paul is listing some specific gifts he's given to the church that he intends that everyone would benefit from. And Christ gave them because you need them. The specific gifts that Paul mentions here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. This list of gifts is is one of five such lists in the New Testament. You've got Romans, you've got two in 1 Corinthians and one in 1 Peter. These are all the lists, right? And they number somewhere, if you put them all together, around 20 different gifts, some of which are not especially spectacular. The lists differ from each other. Uh, No one list is a complete list, but each is selective with with no effort. There's never an effort here to put put it into any sort of a neat scheme. But even together, these lists are not understood as being all the possible gifts that Christ could give. So Paul deliberately emphasizes these gifts, though, because he's concerned about preserving unity. That's why he's bringing these particular ones up. These gifts, they provide the church with the teaching of Christ, and he says in verse 12, for the building up of the body. And he also says in verse 14, for the protection against false teachers. So these gifts, they enable other believers to minister more effectively so that the whole church will increasingly grow in maturity, in wholeness, and in unity. And the gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And it's through these gifts that the gospel is revealed, it's declared, and it's taught. Francis covered these gifts uh, last week when he spoke in them, so I'm not going to repeat what he said. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go to our website where you can hear um, the wonderful things that he brought out from the text about what these are. I encourage you to listen to it. But let me just simply mention here that, that each of the gifts to the church that Paul mentions here involve teaching. The apostles and prophets, they provide the initial and the normative teaching for the church. It's preserved for us here in the New Testament, and and that parallels the Old Testament. Uh, Evangelists proclaim the core of this teaching, centered on the gospel of redemption through, uh, through the death of Jesus Christ. Pastors and teachers, they instruct and they care for the flock through an even fuller communication of the whole counsel of Scripture. You know, there's plenty of other gifts. These are just four. And there, there's plenty of other gifts that don't involve teaching. But God's people should especially appreciate 
the teaching of God's Word. So, let me ask you, are you making it the priority that it should be in your life? The teaching of God's Word. Is it the priority that it should be in your life? What would it look like if you made the teaching of God's Word the important aspect of your life that it should be? I have a few thoughts on that. Thank you for asking. You would pray that God would make the teaching of His Word effective. That would be a part of your regular praying every week. You would come to the times when the church gathers and teaching is taking place. You would come with the expectation of hearing from God. You would come ready to apply what you hear. Not just stay as you were when you came. And you would pray afterwards that God would cause the preaching and the teaching of His Word to bear fruit for salvation to the glory of the Father. Now, why should you do this? Why must teaching be such a priority in the life of the church and in your life in particular? Because without solid, authoritative, biblical teaching, neither you nor our, our church as a whole can or will be able to mature in the direction that Paul describes here. We will be vulnerable to false teachers, harmful doctrines, fruitless distractions, and pursuits of all different kinds. And as a result of that, we will put Christ's unity in His church at risk. That's why teaching needs to be the priority that God says it should be. He gave these gifts because you need them. Are you availing yourself of, the, of where these gifts are being utilized in this church? So a church that rightly appreciates God's gifts to the church is a church that is ready to now lastly and fourthly advance God's purpose for the church. We want to advance God's purpose for the church. Now we're getting to the ultimate purpose for God's giving gifted men and women to the church. So according to what Paul says here, God's purpose for you as a member is that you would get equipped for ministry. You would grow in maturity and you would guard the unity. So Christ, he says he gave gifted people to his church. Paul says this in verse 12. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ. Which means that, that God's purpose for you in his church is that you would get equipped for ministry. Right? So if you're going to advance God's purpose for the church, you need to, first of all, get equipped for ministry. Verse 12. That means that God's, this is God's purpose for you. Get equipped. If you, along with every other member of the church, take seriously your responsibility to be prepared for ministry, well, then you're doing your part in seeing the building up of Christ's church. And that's why God gave gifted people to his church, so that every member would be made a minister who's ready, equipped. The church is built up when you are equipped through the teaching and the preaching. And it's further built up when you minister to others. You know, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but the concept that 
all ministry is to be done by the pastors or the deacons or the clergy. Utterly foreign to the Bible. Do you realize that? Utterly foreign. Every believer is given a gift. And God gives gifted teachers to the church. Every believer is to be equipped and involved in ministry. See, that's God's design for His church. Is it yours? See, this is sanctified... Some of you are saying manipulation. This is, this is admonishment. That's what this is. This is preaching from God's Word. This is what preaching is supposed to be. Right from the text, admonish to apply it. And so I'm asking you, are you applying it? You don't answer to me, you answer to Christ, who is the authority over His church. Are you, are you getting equipped to serve? Are you availing yourself of, of the ways that this church gets equipped? equips its people. Let me talk about that. You know, outside of the service that you're in right now, we've got adult Sunday school from 9 to 10 in the morning. You know, we're actually changing the name to Equipping Hour. Oh, doesn't that just sound... <clears throat> equipping Hour, that's what, that's what we want to take place. That is a very important ministry within the church. There is some very meaty teaching that's going on. And here, let me, let me give you... Okay, here's a little preview, a little trailer of what's to come. We want to have more than one track. Right now we have the, the, the Cornerstone Bible Institute going on. It's, it's some deep and rich stuff, but we also want to open up some other tracks uh, so that we can address some maybe shorter term topics. How do I, how do I have a quiet time? Um, how do I prepare a lesson to teach? You know, things like that. And just have them be like two, three, four weeks and stuff like that. And then, and then maybe a couple weeks in between and we have another one. You know, so that you have some options to choose from. Because I know some of you feel like, oh, it's like a classroom. I'm not in there. Because I see you sitting around the church and not back in the equipment. Yeah, I'm, I'm not naming names, but I'm calling out. I want you to get equipped. There is some excellent teaching and equipping from the Word of God going on. And, and you're not in there, some of you. Why? I'm admonishing you as not manipulating you. I'm admonishing you to consider why. Why am I not there? We also have um, a variety of, um, of other things going on, right? Remember that the, the, the format for the, serv- for the equipping hour, it's going to be hard. I've called it a Sunday school all my life. Equipping hour is more interactive. So you get the chance to raise your hand or say, you know, I don't, I don't. Can you explain that a little bit more? Or what about this scenario? And you get some dynamic back and forth and it just makes the class even richer. We also have evening services. Twice a month. Oh, tonight's the third Sunday. You can apply this sermon by coming back tonight at 5 p.m. Maybe that's manipulation. Maybe I'm kind of using that a little bit. But, but you know, I love the fact that, that our first Sunday evening services of the month where we focus on communion, it's almost as equipped as attended as the morning services. That, that I love that because this is all about Christ and what he's done for us. Third Sunday is quite there. I'm so tired. I get it. But what are you to be about? Who's the one with all authority? What has He provided for you? Are you availing yourself? We don't want to wear you out. We want to equip you. 
But the world, you're out in the world. Think of how much in comparison to the time you're together with the saints, hearing the Word of God and rejoicing with them. I just want to encourage you to consider that and, and apply it even tonight. I'm going to come tonight. I'm going to be here tonight. We're going to, you know what we're going to talk about? Killing sin. Is that not practical or what? Anybody here not need to kill sin? I didn't think so. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. Everybody in here needs to be reminded and encouraged how to kill sin in their life. Come back tonight. Be encouraged. They quit. Uh, we've got uh, home fellowship groups that are going to be starting next month. Those are every week. Um, you not only get encouraged in the Word, you have the opportunity to know others, pray for them, encourage them in their walks with Christ. We, I, we mentioned ladies' fellowship. Ladies fellowship here and um, encouraging biblical womanhood. Those are things that, ladies, you can avail yourself of. It's not just teaching and equipping. It's also fellowship and connection and being with one another. Being no, no one coming alongside you. Are you there where they can come alongside you and see what your needs are? Are you feeling overlooked, but at the same time overlooking where people are at to see where other people are at and learn where you are at and come alongside you there? We have, uh, for the man, we have our Encouraging Biblical Manhood Breakfast. We just had a dinner last week. Um, we're challenged from the Word of God to be the leaders that God has called us to be. We've also got Epic and AIM Ministries, right, for the youth and for the young adults. And they're focused there. And, and lastly, there's one-on-one discipleship. where You can meet with another believer and study the Word together, pray together, grow together, hold one another accountable with a view towards, remember this, you one day discipling somebody else. So there are ample opportunities for you to get equipped in, in the church. And, and I pray that you would avail yourself of them. Why? So that our church would be further built up in Christ. You know, I don't get paid anymore if you guys show up. Do you guys realize that? I want you here for your benefit. I want you here so that you would grow and be equipped and be growing in maturity to protect our church, to grow our church, to build our church which is really Christ's church. So this process of building up God's church through people ministering to the body, it's a process that's going to continue until we meet the goal that Paul has laid out for us here in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See, God gave gifted ministers to the church so that God's people would be equipped for ministry and they would mature to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, God's purpose for His church is going to be advanced then as you make it your priority to get equipped for ministry as you secondly seek to grow in maturity. The first aspect of growing in maturity is to be united in what Paul calls, verse 13, the faith. With the Word being taught, comes the realization that we all have one faith in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this also brings about a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Solid, concrete knowledge of Christ and His purpose. So the second aspect of the goal is to become mature. Not just the individual, but the whole church is in view here. But it is a church that consists of individuals. And so we're all in view here. We don't want to be like children, like the, what he describes in verse 14, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, God would have you grow up to be a mature man or woman. This is not just the goal for those you know, motivated, spirit-filled Christians. This is God's goal for every, people, every one of His people until we all obtain, he said, attain. And as each of us seek 
to use our gift individually, the body matures corporately. And then Paul moves to his ultimate purpose of growing in maturity, which means that as individuals, we must thirdly and lastly guard the unity. We must guard the unity. Paul speaks negatively first, right? Saying we have to avoid the instability that comes from being childish and immature, right? Tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming. What is it that guards us against such intentional deceit? Against false doctrine? What guards us? The more we know the truth. Through the sound teaching, the less susceptible we are to be fooled. Carried away. And then when he says negatively, verse 14, he then says it positively in verse 15. He says, by each of us maturing in Christ. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So the sphere of growth for the church is that of love. Look at verse 16. He says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of it up of itself in love. So that's the sphere of all this taking place, the serving, the growing, the maturing. It's that of love, love for Christ, love for each other. You know, 100 years ago, 99% of babies born in, um, in orphanages, or babies who were not born in, but in orphanages, in the United States, this is really sad, they died before they were even seven months old. Orphanages at that time were an everyday part of, of the social landscape in our country. Uh, unwanted babies were deposited in these institutions where, where what were essentially modern antiseptic procedures, you know, adequate food, it all seemed to guarantee them at least a, you know, a fighting chance at a healthy life. But the babies died. Not from infectious diseases, not from malnutrition, they simply wasted away in a condition that was called marasmus. Sterile surroundings didn't cure it. Having enough food didn't seem to make a difference. These babies died from a completely different kind of deprivation. Lack of touch. When babies were removed from these large, clean, but impersonal institutions to environments where they received physical nurturing, along with formula and stuff like that. All of a sudden, this marasmus just reversed. They, they gained weight. They began to thrive. So, so love, it is essential for babies to not just grow, but to live. And the same is true for Christ's church. It's essential that we love each other enough to to serve each other with the gifts that the Lord has given us. And when you choose to do this, when we choose to do this, the unity of Christ's church is preserved. Let's pray. Lord, may you take your word as it has been read and as it has been preached now, and may you bring the application to it that will bring you honor and glory and build and protect your church. And we ask this in Christ's name for His glory. Amen.